Welcome to the teaching ministry of Magnolia's First. To learn more, visit m1bc.org. Everyone loves a good comeback story. Uh, Even if you are not a golf fan or a Tiger Woods fan, you may be aware of this year's Masters Golf Tournament where Tiger Woods played. Uh, He did not compete for the win, but he made the cut and he played all of the rounds. He walked all the way. I believe it was about six miles. And this is a great comeback story because he did that just 14 months after a serious automobile accident in which his leg was crushed and at one point the doctors even considered amputation. But he came back to participate in the Masters Golf Tournament. Well, that reminded me of a story in Sports Illustrated 20 years ago in which they listed what they believed were at that time the seven greatest comebacks of all time. And it was on the heels of the comeback of the Arizona Diamondbacks against the New York Yankees in the 2001 World Series where the Diamondbacks won the World Series against the Yankees in the ninth inning of Game 7 at the very last opportunity. And they rated that the seventh greatest comeback of all times. You might be interested in the other six. Number six they said, was Elvis Presley in the 1968 television special that made a comeback in his career. (laughs) Number five, they said, was Muhammad Ali. As he was away from boxing for seven years in exile, only to come back and to win once again the world championship of boxing. That was number Number four, they said, was President Harry Truman. In the 1948 presidential election, he won at the very last moment. It went right down to the wire, but he won the presidential election in 1948. Number three, they named Michael Jordan, the NBA basketball player who won three NBA championships with Uh, the Chicago Bulls, and then he stepped away from basketball. He decided he was going to become an all-star baseball player. That didn't work out so well. So he came back to NBA basketball and won three more NBA championships. And so they counted that the number three greatest comeback of all time. Number two, they said, was a tie between the nations of Germany and Japan because after their devastating defeats in World War II, those two nations returned to prominence as world powers. And so they said that was the number two greatest comeback of all time. But the number one greatest comeback of all time, said Sports Illustrated in 2001, was that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. (laughs) I thought that was a pretty good insight for a bunch of dumb sports writers in, in, in Sports Illustrated. Easter is more than a holiday. It's about more than 
pastel-colored Easter eggs and the Easter bunny, and though there's nothing wrong with those things, they're part of the fun and the joy for children uh, at Easter. But Easter is more than a family holiday. The resurrection is more than a religious tradition or a component of a religious story. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the greatest single event in human history. The resurrection of Jesus is the ultimate confirmation of God's love for sinful, selfish humankind, human beings like you and me. The resurrection is the crown jewel of God's redemptive plan to reconcile and restore every one of us who have wandered away in our sin and rebellion to be once again united with the Heavenly Father through the resurrection and sacrifice of His Son. Or in short, let me put it this way, the resurrection changes everything. We've been involved in a series here at Magnolia's First called Jesus, Sacrificial Lamb, and resurrected Lord. And we've been following Jesus on a journey through Luke's gospel that would lead him to the cross and then today to the empty tomb. And so I want to pick up the narrative of the story in Luke's gospel, chapter 23, beginning with verse 26. And as we rejoin the story, Jesus has been through his six illegal trials He has been illegally and unjustly condemned to die, and he's being led away to a place called Golgotha to be crucified. So join the the Scripture with me, Luke 23, beginning with verse 26. As they led Jesus away, a man named Simon, who was from Cyrene, happened to be coming in from the countryside. The soldiers seized him and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. Two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him. When they came to a place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross. And the criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. Now verse 46. Then Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. And with those words, he breathed his last. And at that moment, every sin you have ever committed was placed upon the Lamb of God. Verse 48. And when all the crowd that came to see the crucifixion saw what had happened, they went home in deep sorrow. But Jesus' friends, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching. Now there was a good and righteous man named Joseph. The end of verse 51 says, he was from the town of Arimathea in Judea. And he was waiting for the kingdom of God to come. He went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Then he took the body down from the cross 
and wrapped it in a long sheet of linen cloth and laid it in a new tomb that had been carved out of rock. This was done late on Friday afternoon, the day of preparation, as the Sabbath was about to begin. As his body was taken away, the women from Galilee followed and saw the tomb where his body was placed. They had been watching as Jesus was crucified and as they witnessed his execution upon a cross, there was absolutely no doubt he was dead. They had seen him struggle for breath on the cross. They had witnessed the moment when he breathed his last. They had seen his lifeblood flow from his body. There was no doubt Jesus was dead. And would you envision with me those next few moments when his body was taken down? Listen as I read the words of a poet who recaptured that scene. Listen closely and ponder this, imagining it in your mind. They took him down, his poor dead body, to prepare him for his burial. They took him down, his poor pale body, drained of life, ashened, and stained with its own lifeblood. His healing hands, now pierced and still, serving hands that broke five loaves to feed 5,000, holy hands, often folded in fervent prayer, poor, gentle hands, now pierced and still. His poor torn feet, now bloodied and cold. Feet that walked weary miles to bring good news to broken hearts. Feet once washed with the tears of a repentant sinner. Poor torn feet, now bloodied and cold. His piercing eyes, now dark and blind. Eyes of compassion warming the soul, fiery eyes burning at sin, tender eyes inviting lost sinners. His piercing eyes now dark and blind. His matchless voice, fountain of the Father's thoughts, stopped and stilled to speak no more. Silence now, where once there had flowed wisdom and comfort, spirit and life, his matchless voice stilled to speak no more. They took him down, his poor dead body, to prepare him for his burial. Verse 56, then they went home and prepared spices and ointments to anoint his body. 
But by the time they were finished, the Sabbath had begun. So they rested as required by the law. Then let me take you to yet another scene, this time from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, as the Pharisees re-enter the story. Matthew 27, verse 62. The next day, on the Sabbath, the leading priests and Pharisees went to see Pilate. They told him, Sir, we remember what that deceiver once said while he was still alive. After three days, I will rise from the dead. So we request that you seal the tomb until the third day. This will prevent his disciples from coming and stealing his body and then telling everyone he was raised from the dead. If that happens, we'll be worse off than we were at first. Pilate replied, Take guards and secure it the best you can. So they sealed the tomb and posted guards to protect it. Nothing had been left to chance. The Pharisees who were obsessed with killing Jesus and eradicating any chance of a resurrection legend beginning. The Pharisees brought all the power of the Roman government to unquestionably guarantee that Jesus' dead body would stay in that tomb. <laughs> but the Roman government was no match for resurrection power. Luke 24, verse 1. But very early on Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. They found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. So they went in, but they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. As they stood there puzzled, two men suddenly appeared to them, clothed in dazzling robes. The women were terrified and, and bowed with their faces to the ground. Then the men asked, Why are you looking among the dead for someone who is alive? He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. Remember what he told you back in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and that he would rise again on the third day. Then they remembered that he had said this. So they rushed back from the tomb to tell his 11 disciples and everyone else what had happened. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and several other women who told the apostles what had happened. But the story sounded like nonsense to the men, so they didn't believe it. However, Peter jumped up and ran to the tomb to look. Stooping, he peered in and saw the empty linen wrappings. Then he went home again, wondering what had happened. Well, Peter and the other disciples didn't have to wonder very long because they had face-to-face -face encounters with the resurrected Jesus, leaving absolutely no doubt that indeed he was alive. And they weren't the only ones. The Apostle Paul recounts 
in 1 Corinthians 15 of many others that also saw the resurrected Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Paul said, Let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached to you before. You welcomed it then, and you still stand firm in it. It is this good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you, unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Here was the message. Christ died for our sins just as the Scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day just as the Scripture said. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some had died. Now stop for just a moment in the narrative and think, that crowd is about the size of the crowd here today. Let me ask you, if the resurrected Christ walked into this room this morning, and every one of us saw him, could there be any doubt in Magnolia, Texas, that Jesus is alive? 500 people at one time saw the resurrected Jesus with their own eyes. Verse 7, Paul goes on. Then he was seen by James, and later by all the apostles, and then finally, verse 8, Paul says of himself, Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. I think Paul makes it clear. The resurrection of Jesus is the most well-documented religious event in ancient history. There are hundreds of world religions. There are hundreds of ancient religious leaders. But among all the religions of the world, only one has a leader who died and came back to life. Jesus Christ. And it is not just the Scriptures, though that alone is more than sufficient, but in addition to the Scriptures... Scholars tell us there are at least 39 extra-biblical historical sources that verify the life, ministry, and resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus, the most well-documented religious event in all of ancient history. 1 Corinthians 15 continues with verse 17 where Paul helps us to understand why this is so important to those of us who have put our faith in Christ. Verse 17, And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless, and you're still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, then we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. Paul is building a hypothetical case to say, if the resurrection is a hoax, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, 
then all of our faith is useless and hopeless and worthless. But then verse 20 is the game changer. Paul says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. The first of a great harvest of all who have died. The first century Christ followers wondered, okay, we believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. Some of them could say we saw him after he had been raised from the dead. But what does this mean for us? And as the early church did not yet have the the New Testament in printed form that we now have, they began to wonder, what does this mean for our brothers and sisters in the faith who die? How does the resurrection impact their future after life on this earth has ended? And so Paul wrote a letter to the church in Thessalonica that we know as 1 Thessalonians. And he explained it to them clearly. 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning with verse 13. And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died so that you will not grieve like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. We tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. In other, in other words, those who have died, and whether they are buried or cremated, by the way, the God who spoke the universe into existence will have no problem whatsoever supernaturally recreating us, whatever form our remains might be in, and wherever they might be located. And when the resurrection day comes at the return of Christ, He said, I repeat in verse 15, we who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. I can't wait to hear that trumpet. First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves. Then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these words. I want to bring this message to a close with three statements to answer the question, so what does the resurrection mean to me? I believe it. I'm here today to worship Christ because I believe he's alive. But what does it really mean to me? What's the personal application of Jesus' resurrection? There are many, but I want to give you three as I close. Here's the first. 
The resurrection proves that Jesus is the only one worthy of your faith and devotion. The only one worthy of your faith and devotion. There are many things, many causes, many ideologies to which you could commit your life, but there is only one that will see you through not only in this life, but in eternity. There is only one that can give you the stability and foundation of a life that is real. Jesus Christ, he is the only one who someday before which every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Jesus Christ is the only one worthy of your faith and devotion, and the resurrection proves that. Statement number two. The resurrection means that you can do more than just know about Jesus. You can know him personally. There's a great old hymn that says, he walks with me and he talks with me. You ask me how I know he lives? He lives within my heart. Jesus is not just a religious historical figure. He is a living Lord and Master. And when you come to faith in Christ, when you step across the line of faith, when you leave the sin of your past behind, you turn your back on it, and you turn to Jesus Christ in faith and take that step of faith, you are doing more than just trusting in a religious system. You are embracing a living Lord and Master. And you come to know Him. You come to know Him in love and obedience and fellowship. You come to know Jesus personally. And the final statement is this, and I love this one. The resurrection is the only thing that can give you the courage to look death in the face and not be afraid. And not be afraid. I cannot tell you how many times the other pastors and I have been with those who take their last breath in this life and step over into eternity. And I cannot tell you how many times they have said leading up to that point, I'm not afraid to die. I'm ready to see Jesus. I'm ready to see Jesus. For a person who does not know Christ by faith, they are justified in having fear of death. If they believe that this life is all there is and then there's nothing, or they believe that there is an afterlife, but they don't really understand what that means for a person who is not in Christ, they're justified in being afraid of death. Death is an enemy. Death can win victory. Death can put its claws around you and pull you into a pit for all eternity. But when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, he has won the victory over sin and death. And our victory is in Jesus, as the old hymn says. And when that time comes, and unless Christ returns in our lifetime, that time will come for every single one of us. And when that time comes, if you know Christ as Savior and Lord, 
you can stare death in the face and say, you don't have victory over me. My victory is in my Lord who was raised from the dead. In just a moment, after I pray, we're going to give you the opportunity to come to the front where our deacons and their wives will be or in the balcony. We'll have a couple there as well. If you need to pray about something that's on your heart, they're there to pray with you. If you need to be healed today and would like to be anointed, Cindy and I will be here at the front and we'll have the anointing oil and we will pray for healing if that is your need. But this is also an invitation that if you're here today and you need to take a step of faith, maybe it's that first step over the line of faith to become a Christ follower for the first time. We want to give you that opportunity. What a perfect day to do that. What a perfect day to do that. And you say, oh, it's embarrassing to come to the front. Listen, what's a little embarrassment compared to what Jesus did for you? Besides, it doesn't need to be embarrassing. There are people here praying you will do that. There are people here who will celebrate if you do that. If you take that step of faith, either the first step to become a Christ follower, or if you're already a Christ follower on your faith journey and you just need to take a step of deeper commitment to him, then just come to one of these couples, no matter what kind of step of faith you need to take, come to one of these couples and simply say, I need to take the next step. That's all you need to say. And they are trained and prayed up and prepared to help you do exactly that. This is your invitation to step closer to Jesus, the resurrected Lord. Would you stand with me as I pray? Lord Jesus, we celebrate you today that you have conquered sin and death for us and that we have but to receive your finished work by faith. There's nothing we can do to earn it. We're unworthy. But Lord, you are worthy. You lived a life without any sin, yet you died a cruel criminal's death on a cross, not because you were a sinner, but because we are. And so, Lord, today, I pray, if there's anyone here who has never put their faith and trust in you, and maybe they don't totally understand what that means, but they're willing to know, they're willing to take a step to you, then I pray you give them the courage to come. People will let them out to make their way to one of these deacons and their wives to, who are standing here praying, ready to, to help them take that step or to pray with anyone who needs prayer. Lord, we, we pray that you would anoint these next few moments and that all of us would spend these moments in prayer, in communion with you, lifting to you any burden we have on our heart, so that you might do what only you can do. We pray this in the powerful name of our resurrected Lord. Amen.